The Australia Together podcast is brought to you by Australian Community Futures Planning. We're helping Australians work together to plan a better future for their nation. Visit us at www.austcfp.com.au. Hi, my name's Bronwyn Kelly. I'm the founder of Australian Community Futures Planning, or ACFP, and this is the Australia Together podcast. Today, we're providing the third of four podcast episodes in our series on saving Australian democracy and sovereignty by building a new constitution. The series contains a reading of a four-part essay in which I discuss how Australians are being dragged into a full ceding of their sovereignty over our country and how, if we do nothing to reverse this, we will end up losing our democracy itself. To help prevent this loss, I suggest that Australia needs a new type of constitution in which the people of Australia will have a reasonable and rightful share of power and I tackle some questions that, if we answer them well, should offer us a way to build this constitution together. In episodes 40 and 41, I began setting out why Australians need to build this new type of constitution, and I discuss what needs to be fixed in our democracy if we're to be able to establish it as a form of state and governance that fosters political equality for the electors. I said that this will require us to build a political system where we are enabled as a collective to function cohesively, but without the need to wash away our diversity. I then introduced the concept of the need for Australians to develop what I call non-exclusive terms of trust for issue to those they elect to federal parliament. In this episode, I'll begin the discussion of how we can build these new arrangements for our democracy, starting by learning how to design the necessary terms of trust. Unless we learn how to do this and do it by collaboration, we will not be able to take back control over the choice of who governs us. Here's part three of the essay. How can Australians take back their democracy and sovereignty? Short answer, by establishing terms of trust with the parliaments they elect. Part 3a, the need to release Australia's major political parties from captivity to external interests. In the first two parts of this essay, I set out some questions that have arisen because the two major parties of government in Australia, Labor and the Liberal National Coalition, have both become captive to the interests of external powers. I asserted that they have landed there because they believe their ability to win and retain office is heavily dependent on their submission to the will and agendas of two of these powers, the United States of America, and to a lesser extent, the United Kingdom. Regardless of whether listeners will accept my assertion about the fearful beliefs of the two major parties, there is no doubt that the lengths to which both will go these days in order to retain office and dominate parliaments are extraordinary, even to the point of handing over crucial sovereign decision-making powers, such as how our country and its people shall be used in and for the wars of other countries, or to put that another way, how we and our children and all our aspirations shall be sacrificed for the sake of their continuing power to form exclusive governments. AUKUS and the Force Posture Agreement 
signed between Australia and the US in 2014, an agreement which cedes full control of several parts of Australia to the US for military bases, indicates that capitulation by the two major parties to the US and its corporate military-industrial backers is now complete, along with all the ceding of sovereignty that this entails. As a result of all that, Australians have now lost control over the one power they had in their polity, the power to say, who shall govern them? Having argued that case in the first part of this essay, I then posed several questions, the first two of which were, how do we wrest back control over the choice of who governs us, and how do we establish some control over what they may rightly do with power? I'm going to propose here that the answer to the first of these questions depends on how well we answer the second. By this I mean that if Australians want to wrest back control over the choice of who governs us, and in the process hopefully stop the two main parties of government from relying on the habit they now have in lockstep of trading our sovereignty away in order to retain office, we will need to transition to a form of democracy which requires the Australian people to specify the national project, the purpose for which we wish to form and stay together as a nation. Until we figure out how to do that, we will not be able to take back control over the choice of who governs us, and we will also not be able to release our governments from their fearful servitude to these foreign powers. We will not be able to rescue our independence and sovereignty. There is a somewhat circuitous route between learning how to specify the purpose of the nation and being able to take back control over the choice of who governs us. And I will speak more about this and why the necessary parts of the task must be completed in a certain order in part four of this essay. But in general terms, it means that Australia's democratic processes need to be widened and re-geared to enable political candidates and governments to release themselves from their subjection to the US and the UK and revert to relying instead on Australian enfranchised citizens alone to elect good parliaments. Parliaments that have more capacity to work together for the real interests of Australians and to do so without the need to sacrifice the interests of those living in some disadvantaged electorates or sections of the population. The idea that major party candidates for federal parliament might at some time in the future feel safe enough to rely on Australians for their election to office rather than on deals with the corporate backers of external powers is likely to test the credulity of any politicians who might prefer to think of Australians as unreliable in knowing what's in their own best interests or as, shall we say, too stupid to select the party best place to serve their interests. Political parties attempt from time to time to speak as if they respect the intelligence and reliability of the community, and occasionally they indulge, at least for marketing purposes, in a discourse that feigns humility and suggests they believe there is wisdom in the electorate. Adages such as, the system says the people always get it right, are trotted out after elections and sometimes after a referendum, in order to promote that veneer of respect for Australians. But in reality, they honour the electorate with neither wisdom nor reliability. When not in public, 
political parties are utterly cynical of the capacity of the electorate to think sensibly and speak coherently as a wise collective. Indeed, their project is to supplant the voices of Australians with their own much narrower slogans and sectional agendas. They have a vested interest in preventing the formation of a more thoughtful collective. Their success in attaining office deliberately relies instead on tactics such as culture wars which divide the electorate so that it cannot think and decide as a united community. In light of that, it might appear naive or overly optimistic to suggest that the success of the national project, including a project to regain our sovereign independence, might depend on the preparedness of parliamentarians and governments to rely on, that is to trust, the capacity of the electors for good judgment. Major parties in particular will be reluctant to accept that building a relationship of trust with electors might offer a feasible path to political office. But the lack of trust, or more accurately, the mutual distrust between the electors and the elected, is still a huge problem of relationship breakdown that we must get past before we can expect to claw back control over the choice of who may govern us and what they may rightly do with power. The parliaments and governments of Australia are failing Australians. They are doing the wrong thing by all of us, particularly in relation to climate change and exposure to wars. And they will continue to fail us for as long as this mutual distrust, with all the disrespect it implies on both sides, is allowed to persist. So it will be interesting to see which side might back away from the distrust first if systemic change or unimaginably dreadful crises call on them to do so in the coming decades. In all feasibility, we probably shouldn't expect that the two major political parties will desist from their distrust of Australian electors any time soon. They have too much at stake, not least their own survival as political parties. They are painfully aware of the drop in their primary vote over the last couple of decades, and therefore just as painfully aware that they might be on the brink of extinction. This will not incline them to trust Australians, and it is part of the reason why they have switched their allegiance away from Australians and to foreign powers. They will need strong incentives from Australians to switch their allegiance back and trust the electors. And these incentives will need to make them feel safe, which is to say that part of the pragmatic purpose of the incentives must be to offer them a lifeline, a pathway to their ongoing survival and participation in Parliament with integrity. The incentives won't work if they threaten the major parties with extinction. I will speak more about this in Part 4 of this essay. At present, however, this mutual distrust remains a root cause of parliamentary failure that must be fixed before anything else about our democracy can be fixed. The distrust is a circular problem that we the electors and they the elected have all locked ourselves into and we must find a way to short-circuit that. We're stuck in what William Butler Yeats might have called a widening gyre, meaning simply that the more the people distrust the parliament, the more the parliament distrusts the people, and so it goes on, breaking the nation apart. This has led to more commentators of late starting to quote and re-quote Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, probably because 
more succinctly than any other evocation of the modern dilemmas born of colonialism and imperial power structures, that poem evokes our sense of our world falling apart and it intimates the cause of the breakdown. In 1919, after the horror of empires collapsing in the war that was supposed to end all wars, Yeats wrote, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Yeats's poem did not have a happy ending. He did not imagine in the second part of the poem that the second coming would arrive in the form of an enlightened revelation after the horrors of World War I. But how does this relate to the questions I've posed? Well, at the risk of extending metaphors from poetry any further, I would suggest that the poem rightly pinpoints the cause of the crisis, and that is that the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Governments cannot hear us. And this is because we are not issuing a clear idea of the direction in which we wish them to fly. The consequences of our failure to do that are equally dire for the people of Australia and political parties. Both face existential threat. But the situation is not at all hopeless because, contrary to any casual political disrespect, we are not too stupid to know what's in our interest. We're simply too disorganised to articulate it. However, there is a way around this. There is a way to establish a safe path to achievement of a peaceful democratic order in a post-colonial, post-imperial world. This is not a form of peaceful order that has crystallised in the imagination of many Australians yet, although it has to be said that First Nations people have longed for it for over 200 years. But in down-to-earth terms, it consists in reshaping the way Australian parliaments and people respectfully relate to and speak to each other. It consists in Australians building the capacity to express their diverse voices in an integrated way, the non-exclusive way I spoke of in part two of this essay. This is not beyond the capability of Australians. By non-exclusive, I mean that the voice of the Australian people needs to be expressed in terms that should enable every Australian to feel that they can find a place in this country and that this does not require them to negate what they consider to be essential to their continuing existence, their quality of life and their sense of themselves as distinct, self-determining individuals whose rights arise from the fact that they are inescapably diverse humans, not identical in culture or in origin or needs or genetic makeup. It will require an understanding that as disabled people or as women or men or children or older persons or people of non-binary gender or Indigenous people or as people of different cultural and ethnic origins, they will not and cannot be the same. Even within the groups they might each identify with, there can be no homogeneity because they each differ along several other lines. Life is complex, and as such we need political systems which can support heterogeneity in our society, by which I mean we need to design a form of sovereignty and arrangements of state 
capable of maintaining peace and security in a diverse, multicultural nation without extinguishing the legitimate interests of any of its members. Or, to recall what I said in part two of this essay, the search for this form of peaceful statehood will require us to resolve what Professor David Runciman has called the paradox of modernity. That is, the paradox of needing to be two contradictory things at once, individuals with rights, but also individuals that are subsumed to the collective. But it will require us to resolve that paradox by setting our democracy up in such a way that the terms of trust we offer our parliaments and governments will enable the collective to function cohesively without the need to wash away diversity. It should allow us to productively and fairly integrate our interests rather than subsume them to the collective in such a way that they are extinguished or unfairly downplayed. What I'm saying here is that only if we include in our democracy a system of building non-exclusive terms of trust with those we elect can we make it possible to achieve a peaceful coexistence of self-determining individuals and for that matter of sovereignties. So I'll go on now to discuss how we may build these non-exclusive terms of trust together. Part 3b, building non-exclusive terms of trust that specify our values, human rights, and particularly our right to a voice in our own governance. In part four of this essay, I will talk about the essential things Australians will need to install in our constitution if we are to be able to develop non-exclusive terms of trust to issue to parliaments. Broadly, we will need to begin by articulating our values as a nation. Beyond that, these non-exclusive terms of trust will need to be expressed, at least in part, in the form of human rights. And in a multicultural nation, that means we need to find a way to accept the necessary coexistence of the necessarily different rights of distinct individuals and groups understanding that human rights cannot be mutually exclusive. The rights of some cannot cancel out the essential rights of others. If we don't each have all the rights that we need and which are due to us because of our essential difference as individual human beings, then we do not have rights as equals. Our political equality inherently depends on each of us freely acknowledging both our common and differing rights. This project of gathering all the rights we each need as the essentially different humans that we all are will entail an acceptance of a principle that distinct groupings of humans are entitled to distinct rights precisely because of their essential and inescapable differences. So while there is a core of human rights that every human is equally and identically entitled to, this pertains particularly to civil, political and economic rights, there are also specific rights that certain groups are entitled to, which people in other groups are not, because A, they do not and cannot belong to these groups and therefore they simply do not need the same rights to survive and prosper, and B, Specific rights that are the unique preserve of people in groups other than their own do not detract from their rights. For instance, a woman's rights do not detract from a man's. On the contrary, 
It is only in the acknowledgement of every other person's and group's distinct rights that people and communities will be able to find a way to live in peace together as equals, without exclusion of diversity, or more pointedly, without what in effect are slow, genocidal attempts towards monoculture. Australians have probably not yet reached a point in their thoughts about human rights where they might be willing to accept that some people should have rights that are distinct from their own. Many of them are certainly not yet ready to accept that everyone else should have a right to a voice in laws made about them, as we have seen from the defeat of the 2023 referendum on the Indigenous voice. Nor does it appear that the majority of Australians consider there is even a need for diverse voices in our polity. The voice referendum seems to have divided the nation so as to distract the majority from that need and to deny that First Australians have such a need as a distinct culture and group. In that regard, the majority of electors have, perhaps unintentionally, sought in effect to deny the actuality of indigeneity itself, at least as a valid basis for organising political influence. The referendum result has given impetus instead to the rise of a discourse which is now offering permission to Australians to deny the cultural distinctness of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and from there to negate multiculturalism itself. This rising discourse is an attempt to stamp out diversity. It will not succeed. Indeed, the attempt has as much chance of succeeding as Margaret Thatcher had of getting rid of society. But It is necessary to understand the attempt for what it is, an attempt to encourage Australians to begin insisting on the cultural sameness and assimilation that would be necessary to recreate Australia as the monoculture that was sought when the Constitution was first made law in 1901, complete with clauses that enabled laws to be made on the basis of race, including laws which adversely discriminate against any cultures that can be racially characterised. The failure of the Indigenous Voice referendum therefore places Australians in the curiously contradictory position of having denied both the validity and actuality of indigeneity, difference and the nation's multicultural composition, but reaffirming at the same time a constitution which enables racism in law. The referendum debates and results would suggest that ostensibly we don't want laws and privileges to be decided on the basis of race. And yet, we want to maintain the full power of the Constitution in sections 25 and 5126 to do exactly that. This attempted reinstatement of a monoculture is most obvious in the charge being led by commentators such as former Prime Minister John Howard, who declared in November 2023 that he had always had trouble with the concept of multiculturalism because immigrants, he said, should be expected to adopt the values and practices of the country they moved to. Mr Howard did not offer a rendition of the values of Australia, but clearly he was trying to re-establish the colonial project of assimilation and a breeding out of difference, characteristic of the times of the white Australia policy, and was specific in suggesting that Australia should not try to, quote, create some federation of tribes and cultures, unquote. He stated, we tried too hard to institutionalise difference 
rather than celebrate what we have in common, by which he presumably meant we should only celebrate what we have in common with him. Clearly, Mr Howard is not looking to solve the paradox of modernity in a non-exclusive way. To the extent that he has argued that Australia needs to reject its now hugely multicultural composition, almost half of Australians were born overseas or had a parent born overseas, it might be said that Mr Howard is running against the tide and against the prevailing opinion of Australians about the benefits of our multicultural society, noting that between 2013 and 2021, an average of 83% of Australians in statistically valid surveys agreed or strongly agreed with the statement that multiculturalism has been good for Australia. Mr Howard was attempting to say that cultural sameness, uniformity, that is to say, elimination of difference, and an exclusive focus on what we all have in common, will bring us cultural and racial harmony. As I showed in part two of this essay, focusing on what we have in common rarely brings a multicultural nation together, and certainly not in a non-exclusive way, because by definition, an approach that eliminates difference is inherently discriminatory and leaves the issues of minorities unattended to. Sometimes, as in the case of climate change, it leaves the interests of the majority unattended to. What diverse societies have in common in most political debate, especially at a national level, is almost zero. And climate change is a graphic example of how, if we persist with a habit of addressing only those problems on which we have found common ground, we will wait a long time to solve most problems. This will pertain for as long as we let politics continue to function as an exclusive arena for resolution of problems without offering some guidance as to the national project we really want. Fortunately, there is one area where Australians at least have consistently shown in surveys, research projects and community engagement a high degree of commonality. And we can use this to provide guidance to politicians in coherent terms about the national project we really want. That singular area of commonality relates to what we want for the future. The research shows that we all want the same things for our kids and grandkids and anyone we love who will live on after us. In this regard, when our focus is on what we think we need in the short term, we exhibit quite stubborn disagreement. But when our focus is on what we think would be best for all of us in the longer term, we readily find a staggering level of agreement. The community-based research collective Australia Remade observed this when, in 2017, they conducted major community engagement through a project group called A24, which asked Australians to imagine the Australia of their dreams. They reported that, quote, Listening to hundreds of people from many walks of life, we came away understanding that the hopes and dreams we share for our future are staggeringly similar, unquote. Mr Howard may or may not have been thinking about what Australians value for their future. Based on what he asked Australians to value in a new preamble he drafted to the Constitution for our consideration in the 1999 referendum on a republic, it would appear his idea of what we should value is largely about our past rather than our future, it made no space for Australians to come together on all that much more than what he personally valued about bygone days, 
although oddly it did assert that we value independence as dearly as the national spirit, something that subsequent governments have now dismissed by rendering Australia into the client state of foreign corporate and military powers. The Howard preamble was rejected by 60.66% of Australian electors, and it is remarkable that almost exactly the same proportion, 60.06%, rejected the Indigenous voice. Along with the obvious fact that no referendum has succeeded in Australia since 1977, the results in the Republic and Indigenous Voice referendums indicate at the very least that governments need to put more work into understanding what Australians value if they expect them to answer in the affirmative to referendums. Obviously, their knowledge of what might bring us together, what we might rally around in all our diversity, is shallow. This is something that only the people of Australia can fix, and they need to do it by organising themselves to express their preferred national project, the purpose for which they wish to come together and stay together as a nation. Fortunately, this staggering level of agreement that Australians exhibit about what we want for our future, this unique space where we quite easily find commonality, offers us a sound basis that we can build on to design our preferred national project. As I mentioned in part two of this essay, Australian Community Futures Planning has been trialling integrated planning and community engagement processes built on this starting point of common agreement about what we want for our future. The purpose of these trials and related research by ACFP is to help Australians construct non-exclusive terms of trust that they can offer to the parliaments they elect to represent them, terms which encapsulate their preferred future for the nation, as well as the human rights they wish to claim and obligations they wish governments to observe in relation to those rights. Some might call this a social contract, but it is more accurately described as terms of trust, because that component of the terms of trust that gives Australians the right and the means to articulate the national project for the future is not intended to be a mechanism that will bind or disempower either governments or the people. It is intended instead to result in the design of some terms that can guide parliamentary deliberations and lawmaking, as well as government policymaking, so that they both arc towards realisation of a cohesive society, one that can maintain a peaceful coexistence of diverse, self-determining political equals. That said... The component that enshrines the human rights of all members of the democracy in law should leave the parliaments and governments of Australia in no doubt of their obligations to those who have given them power in an election. Some parts of these terms of trust are binding, just like any other law, and it is necessary that they be enshrined in the law that governs how all other laws may be legitimately made, the Constitution, and that they be enshrined there by the only ones who can make that law, the people. Otherwise, the people will be unable to hold those they elect accountable for abuse of their rights, and more, they will be unable to fully specify what parliaments and governments may rightly do with power. Finally, they will be unable to shift from ineffective colonial systems of monarchical government to a democratic system that will enhance their chances of designing and achieving the national project they really want. In that regard, I'll now turn to issues we should consider if we are to build terms of trust for a post-colonial, 
democratic form of state. Part 3C. Building terms of trust as political equals in a post-colonial age. The task of establishing terms of trust that parliaments and governments will be able to understand and respect is a big one. It's a big national project, the like of which has never been mounted before. And it is made bigger as a challenge because of the moment in history in which we might dare to attempt it. Like several other countries whose political systems were established under colonialism, Australia is at a fulcrum point in its history where there is a need for a decision on whether we wish to shuffle off colonialism and the forms of state which rely on constitutional monarchy rather than constitutional democracy. These old forms of state are hangovers of empires, at least from the one that did not fully disappear in the war to end all wars. Unlike the Austro-Hungarian, Ottoman and Tsarist Russian empires which did disappear, the British Empire was left tattered by World War I, but still standing, and it took another world war and the odd revolution to cut it down to size. In Australia, though, the colonial form of state remained virtually untouched, even as the imperial standing of its mother country went into atrophy. And the recent voice referendum does not suggest that if there is a will to transition our constitution from colonialism to a mature democracy, we have yet found a suitably safe way to do that. Nevertheless, many Australians will be more attentive these days to the effect of colonialism on the capacity of states to settle into political arrangements that facilitate the peaceful coexistence of cultures, self-determining political equals and state sovereignties. Because of the voice referendum, many Australians will be more aware than they have been in the past of the failure of colonialism, at least insofar as colonised states may continue to insist on forms of state where a single monarch claims exclusive sovereignty. They will be more aware of this because of calls in the Uluru Statement from the Heart for recognition of a coexistence of sovereignties based on justice and self-determination and particularly because of the recent violence in Israel and Gaza, they will be quite able to draw parallels between those calls from Uluru and the calls of Jewish, Muslim, Christian and non-religious people all over the world for a two-state solution in Palestine. It will be evident to Australians that the horrific violence in Palestine is a tragic example of what happens when nation-states refuse to accept that sovereignties must find a way to coexist in peace and with mutual respect. However, political leaders attempting to resolve these sorts of failures of state abroad and at home will assume that statecraft and forced deals between powerful elites are the only way to achieve a suitable rapprochement or what, in relation to Palestine, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has called a durable peace. I would venture to suggest that statecraft and elitist forced deals do not have a great track record of achieving peace, especially a durable one. They are one of the ham-fisted exclusive tools of colonialism, not the answer to it. If anything, the evidence suggests that they make everything worse. This is not to say they're entirely useless, especially if investment is organised to rebuild a territory devastated by colonialism and exclusive forms of state. But if we are to learn anything from history, 
It is that human relationships between people and between people and their governments rather than intergovernmental relationships themselves are the place to start. Governments must be able to hear those they represent before they can hope to champion durable forms of peace, either at home or abroad. In her appeals to stop the blood-dimmed tide in Palestine, Penny Wong asserted in November 2023 that a just and enduring peace requires a two-state solution. She recognised that people may doubt that can be achieved, but nevertheless then asked, with all sincerity, what is the alternative? I would respond that there is none, but that to achieve a durable peace, both for post-colonial times at home and post-war times abroad, we might start by use of processes which will help the people of a nation build much better, more trusting relationships with those that seek to represent them in negotiations in either domestic or international arenas for these longed-for rapprochements. That is, in negotiations for what the people of Palestine might call a two-state solution or what the First Peoples of Australia would call a treaty or a makarata. There is a relatively simple path to this in Australia. It consists in convincing governments to formalise their respect for the values and all the human rights of all citizens. Those rights listed in the International Covenants on Civil, Political, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. In particular, it consists in encouraging our governments to at last abandon the hypocrisy of assenting to international law on human rights while denying Australians those rights in domestic law. It consists in recognising the fundamental right of all Australian citizens to self-determination. And finally, it consists in conceiving of the possibility of establishing one extra crucial human right, a type of right that isn't yet articulated in the International Human Rights Treaties, but which is essential if we are to find a way to establish a peaceful coexistence of cultures, sovereignties and self-determining political equals. That right is the right of the people of a nation to a voice in their democracy. Until we do all that, until we set up that mixture of legal instruments for human rights and statements of the national values and project that should comprise the terms of trust I'm speaking of, Penny Wong cannot expect that Australia, as part of its statecraft, can offer a demonstration case as to how a durable peace between coexistent sovereignties, that is, a durable two-state solution, may one day be established in Palestine. In the next and final part four of this essay, I will sketch out a program by which Australians may at least be confident that Australian governments will at last agree to respect their human rights and how we may all become conversant in properly exercising a right to a voice in our democracy. If we master this, it may mean that Australia ends up with a polity of multi-partisan government rather than the adversarial divisive bipartisan form of government to which we are currently confined. It may mean more fluidity in the composition of parliaments so that they can foster more inclusion rather than the exclusion currently preferred by the two main parties of government. This might be unacceptable to the major parties, but if their primary vote keeps dropping, it might also be attractive to them. 
in that it offers opportunities to achieve democratic reform without ejecting them from the parliamentary arena entirely. It can release the major parties, for instance, from the waste and ignominy of repeated failure in referendums. It can also offer them a lifeline as parties of decency and integrity, a possibility of their participation in Parliament without having to sacrifice both the futures of Australians and the value we all place on independence in sovereignty, especially when it comes to decisions on war. Finally, it will offer everyone the advantage of being able to peacefully transition away from the problems that colonialism continues to wreak on the nation and towards the benefits that only a full democracy can offer. In particular, after the failure of the voice referendum, it offers a feasible means of achieving something that more and more Australians are now calling for, a just and fair treaty with First Nations. A treaty that everyone thinks is fair and just is an essential part of any transition from colonialism and constitutional monarchy to democracy and a peaceful coexistence of sovereignties in Australia. Such a treaty, one that all may be able to agree is fair and just, can only come about if it is preceded by another type of treaty that we must all sign if we want to build a peaceful state, an agreement in which we freely confer on ourselves and each other all the human rights we need as the inescapably diverse individuals that we are. In earlier writing, I've called this a National Agreement on Human Rights and Obligations. This is an agreement that Australians should be able to vest in their constitution for their own protection from abuse by unaccountable executive governments. For more information on this, visit the ACFP website at www.austcfp.com.au forward slash publications. A link is in the description below. In the next part of this essay, I will set out how we can begin to walk down a path to the type of democracy that can support a peaceful coexistence of cultures, self-determining political equals and sovereignties. Thanks for listening. The next and final part of this essay will be released on the Australia Together podcast next week. But if listeners want to read all four parts now, the full transcript is already available on the ACFP website at www.austcfp.com.au forward slash major hyphen essays. Links are in the description below. Links to all the sources and evidence for the claims made in this essay are also available in the transcript. My name's Bronwyn Kelly, and this has been the Australia Together podcast, brought to you by Australian Community Futures Planning. To become involved in planning and building a better future for Australia, subscribe to ACFP at www.austcfp.com.au. Everyone is welcome to participate.